Hello everybody, my name is Michael Garvey. I'm the chairman of Buckinghamshire Business First and this is our latest in our series of Talking Heads podcast and I'm delighted to be joined today by Steve Baker, MP for Wickham. Morning Steve. Good morning Michael and thank you very much indeed for having me on and it gives me a particular opportunity to say thank you to you personally and to Bucks Business First for all that you do. I don't know where we'd be without you particularly I don't know where we would have been through coronavirus. So I really want to say a heartfelt thank you. You're a really important institution. You personally are an important institution and Bucks Business First. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say so. I mean, clearly we we aren't uh, working in isolation. Um, we're an important cog, I think, in the wheel of Team Bucks. Um, and, and it's something that I'm really keen to keep promoting the idea of working together, the, very, the different stakeholders. You know, we really can achieve more if we work closely together. But but this isn't about me and it's not about BBF, Steve. This is all about you. Oh, and, my goodness. Um, so, so first question, I guess, is tell me why Wickham and and what what are the what are the sort of nuts and bolts of the town and the the, the constituency that really, really fire you up and, and give you a passion to keep serving the people? Well, this is a beautiful place to be with amazing businesses and great people. I mean, we're so well positioned in the United Kingdom. The the railway service, obviously, railways always give some cause for complaint. I had an issue on Monday that there'd been a landslip up the line or whatever. But actually, we've got an incredibly fast train into London. We're on the motorway. We're in a beautiful place um, and we've got plenty going on. So this is a, a really terrific place to be. And, you know, alas, that quite a lot of people are down on Wickham, but they shouldn't be. Um, you know, uh, this this is a great place to be. Obviously, cost of living here is high, uh, but it's high because we're close to London. But I think we've got a lot going for us here. Um, as you know, Buckinghamshire is the entrepreneurial heart of Britain and Wickham's part of that. So I'm incredibly proud to be Wickham's MP. Um, politics is always tricky because we're the complaints department for everything. But I am not complaining. So, so it's been a challenging period for politicians. I mean, obviously, you've risen to the the high office of Minister of State for Northern Ireland, and I know this is a very sensitive time in Northern Ireland. So, we are very grateful for the time you're giving us because Good. I'm sure that you've got one eye on what is going on currently, and it's very topical at the moment. But, but politics. Do you think there is a disconnect between politics and people are people more skeptical of politicians and politics now what's the what's the state of politics in this country do you think well i think people would um, consider me uh, um foolish if i can claim that there wasn't a lot of there, there weren't a lot of great great difficulties it, it's a weird juxtaposition on the one hand we as members of parliament are always meeting the public always i mean i was out last night until about 10 o'clock with scouts meeting young people 14 to 18 and they my goodness they were interested and they really grilled me across a very very wide field um and today i should be out meeting constituents so we're always plugged in and we're always hearing about everything that's going on from the good to the bad to the awful and so we're really connected. However, you look at social media, you'd think we did nothing. Um, so fine, it's not a question of complaining, but yeah, there, there is a disconnect. I, I think you can't escape the cons. One can't escape the consequences of the internet from email, making it so easy for large numbers of people to fire us a message 
through to not only Facebook and Twitter, but direct messages on all those platforms. We are so inundated with correspondence and people have huge expectations for how we'll reply. But I can assure you, I could, I've got five staff, or I've got a paid intern at the moment as well, so six. I can assure you they're extremely busy. So there is a massive problem of participation of a, of a kind that's very difficult for us to cope with and not very satisfactory for the public. But more than that, what I would say is, because in our private lives, we're used to choice and competition, and if we don't like the service we get, we go somewhere else. We tend to expect the public sector to work like that too. And of course it doesn't, and politics doesn't either. And that's creating all sorts of tensions. So um, to sort of hand, hand back to you, I, I would say if I was to land one message, it's like whether we like it or not, in a democracy, we all get the government we deserve because we do choose the government we've got. No, absolutely. And, and I think you've been and you've been a very strong advocate of people getting involved in politics. I mean, it's you know, it, it's all very well to sort of stand on the sidelines and throw rocks, you know, on Facebook and uh, complain about everything. But you're right. You know, we, we, we get I guess we get the government we deserve because we vote for it and we vote for their policies. Um, and I guess if more people were involved in local politics and national politics, were better informed about what was going on and the choices that can be made, yeah. we could probably have a more intellectual debate rather than just sort of throwing insults. So, look, I, yeah, I know nobody wants to live in a world where we just throw insults. But let me just be really frank. We were talking about our town and uh, that our town is suffering from some of the same problems we got everywhere. People are doing more shopping online. And that means it's more difficult to retail on the high street. Business rates are high and, and so on. So there's always going to be hard questions and trade-offs. But it sort of doesn't matter who's in power. They're going to face resource scarce, scarcity because everyone does. And they're going to have hard decisions to make. So consider our town. A very large, as you'll know better than me, a very large amount of property in our town is owned by the council. And all of it is to a very considerable extent controlled by the council. I met one constituent who needed to change the name of his business. And um, it was a long involved process just to change the name of his business. And it really, to me, if you own property and you've got a business within the bounds of public decency, you should be able to name it what you wish. Well, yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? You, you would. So, now, why do, so why do we tolerate a system like this where you can't even change the name of your business on the high street? Um, why do we tolerate a system where you can't change a light warehouse over to being a light workshop, for example, without permission? Um, you, you know, why, why, why is it that we allow councils to have so much control? Now, this isn't a criticism of Buckinghamshire Council. It's the way it is across the country. And the answer must be that in the midst of so many problems, it's just too easy to go with the flow and politicians do it as business people do. And yeah. the, the answer to this is, to, I'm afraid, is to, it, it's, it's politicians like me who want to be free market in the, in the general interest. I want to lift our town up. But to me, what that requires is for the council to sell its property, have far, far less control over the rest of the property, and be much more relaxed about property being used for what people actually need, which is, for example, homes in the town centre. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, you, you've given me a perfect segue into my next two topics, Yeah, which is there was a piece on Radio 4 I was listening to earlier this week about the um, disconnect between private sector and public sector productivity. Mm -hmm. I think various studies between 1997 and today suggesting that 
really in the public sector, productivity's flatlined, whereas in the private sector, it's been about 60%. And, and, and there's some debate around the relative comparability of those figures. But but a question for you then is, is the public sector a dragging anchor on the UK economy? If we want public sector productivity to soar in the way that private sector productivity has to, we have to take away some of the things which are just a waste of officials' time. So things like collective responsibility, as, as a representative of Northern Ireland within the UK government, it's very important that we have a say over policy. But but I, I'm asked almost, it's like almost everything goes for collective agreement. And it's almost always what we call a nil return. <laughs> and it just the amount of official time that is spent reviewing policies in order to say, yes, there's no impact on Northern Ireland. It must be possible to make these things much more efficient. Yeah. But the issue there is that bus business and government are two different categories of action. So, well, what do you do with that? Well, one thing is you have to get government to do less. Definitely have to do, get government to do things differently. Um, and we have to have different expectations for what government and the state does. But again, I'm afraid that comes back to public participation, because if I felt the British public or the public in Wickham very specifically were saying, cheering me on, saying, go on, Steve, make it different. Do the things you want to do. We're with you. We're behind you. My goodness, I could be bold. Well, yeah. And I think the challenge, of course, is that, you know, what we've got in society now is, is lots of very vocal minority groups. Um, and, I, and I think we have a silent majority. You know, I speak with a lot of business people, you know, sort of sensible thinking sort of people who are dissatisfied with a lot of things, but probably not agitated enough to, you know, go public on it. Yep. Um, but but we, we have given, um, you know, you mentioned the Internet and Facebook and all sorts of other platforms. We have given minorities a voice, which is the right thing to do. Yeah. But the danger is that those minority voices become disproportionately large. And actually, it's that volume of noise that maybe politicians, politicians are hearing, which is over influencing policy. And therefore, you just end up with policies that suit a few people but actually the majority become progressively disgruntled i think you make an extremely important point now i'm very clear that democracy is majority rule plus minority rights so when we talk about minorities it's absolutely crucial that everybody enjoys political moral legal equality and equal opportunity and it's very you've always got to be careful not to be misconstrued on issues like talking about minorities so it's absolutely vital we have majority rule plus minority rights. But there is a danger, as you say, that because it's those with the strongest opinions who make the most effort to express them, that the majority's rule gets undermined by um, the extent of voice. But again, I'm afraid it's like reminds me of Oscar Wilde, who said the problem with socialism is it requires too many evenings. And, and that's the problem. We've all got something better to be doing than going to committee meetings to discuss planning. Yeah. And I, I suppose my plea is to, to people, and it's not a partisan point, it's a, whatever your political persuasion, just get more involved with your party, even if all you do is choose candidates, which only has to be done once in each election cycle, and hold those candidates to account. Tell them what you want from them. Tell them what, you, what, what you're willing to support, what kind of style of government you want, so that they're empowered to give it to you. There's, there's definitely a sense that the world is not working as it should. I think that that is 
fundamentally explained. So it's a case you've heard me make before. It's fundamentally explained by governments spending far beyond their means for a very long time, in particular in relation to age related spending, which is not to blame older people. It's just to say that's where the money goes, both at council level and, as you said, on the NHS. And for 50 years, that that long term chronic overspending has been covered by increasing the money supply. Now, this is my favourite subject for a reason. It's because I believe it's at the root of our difficulties. People can see the world's not working right. Unjust things are happening, like house prices being lifted out of the reach of young people, um, like taxes being too high and systems not being able to cope. And in the end, it's government doing too much. I believe it's government doing too much, spending too much, making promises which can't be honestly kept out of tax. And I mean over 50 years and then covering it by having cheap credit. And then we've seen recently a lot, a lot of QE. And, you know, in a sense, I'm afraid I'm in politics to try and set this right, because we will only have a just and moral society when politicians make promises they can honestly keep and fund them honestly out of taxation that's transparent. Yeah. And no yeah, amount yeah. of FOI requests will solve that problem. It's going no. to be solved by people saying, I want a, a fair system. <laughs> no, no, indeed. And I think no, the housing crisis is a good one, isn't it? You know, successive government policy over 40 years has fueled the crisis, frankly. You know, if 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 people in power had ever spoken to people in industry that know about these things, you know, they would, you know, government would say we're thinking of doing this. Industry would say, well, why? Because that's just going to make the problem worse. Yeah. And I think actually to your to your point then about the government getting too involved, being too much of a nanny state's the wrong word, but trying to do too much. And I think you know at a local level so so you know you'll be familiar with the abolishment of the local enterprise partnerships that were of course created in 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 the yeah. wake of the the 2010 coalition yeah. government when you when you came into power and obviously you know that was a great idea i was the the vice chair of the local enterprise partnership for eight or nine years and and we had a private public sector relationship and achieved a great deal, I think, but that's now all been sort of centralised back into to local government. Local government are in control of the purse strings, the direction. So it's become much more political. And so in a laissez-faire sort of economic environment that I think we both favour, government policy seems to be going the other way in some respects. Yeah, so the, the LEPs were um, founded out of a report called No Stone Unturned in the search for, search for Growth, which was by one Michael Hesseltine. And, and I, I met him. He came to um, he came to Wickham and I met him at the Clare Foundation in Saunton. And actually, the, mo the, the thing he was most interested in was the fact that from a BBF point of view, the entrepreneurs were not only happy to give their time to help other entrepreneurs, but actually give money. So I was one of those 10 founding members of BBF that actually invested in BBF. And he was yeah. absolutely amazed that business people, one, were prepared to give their time free of charge, but also actually give their money to help the private sector. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not surprised. We've got collective interests, which we should pursue. And yeah. people would be surprised to hear me say that and you agree with me. But it shouldn't surprise people. People on the left seem to identify collective interests with the state. And that, to me, is what the one of the single biggest mistakes anyone makes. We have collective interests, but they don't need to be embodied in the power, coercive power of the state. Very often, collective interests are best pursued by voluntary association. Because one of the things about voluntary association is if it's not working, you can walk away. 
Whereas when it's compulsory association through councils and the national government, when it's not working, the only way you can walk away is to emigrate. And that's too radical. And you, we don't do it yeah. overwhelmingly. So but but without picking a fight with Michael Heseltine, he is a different kind of conservative to me. I'm from the classical liberal tradition and he is from the interventionist high Tory tradition. So he, he's much more comfortable with with interventionism and, and so forth. So with the left, so I, I always, honestly, I always felt that their functions would be better carried out with ca councils, but with councils collaborating with the private sector. So from my point of view, maybe we're in a position where provided the council engages very closely with Bucks Business First, we could be in a golden situation where maybe we've cut out some bureaucracy and we can get the things done which need to be done collaboratively with you, BBF, but with a very clear separation of what is public and what is private, with yeah. BBF representing the private sector. Absolutely. Public, yeah. And, and that could perhaps have a degree of clarity, but it is going to require our councillors and officials to consult in a very full and frank and open way with you, the business people of Bucks. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to that productivity thing, isn't it? That if you, if, you know, if you can extract some functions and services out of the council, which are better provided by the private sector, so delivered more effectively, more cost effectively. But, you know, that, that's the true nature of working in partnership, isn't it? So there's clearly functions that, you know, yeah. local government has to perform statutory functions. And there's clearly functions the private sector can perform for them. Um, you know, better connected to the business community, can have greater efficiency with the delivery of the service. So, so, so Utopia, to me, looks like a partnership where each party really, truly recognises the, the sort of the strengths of the other party. Yeah, and the, but we, yes, absolutely. And when we think about their strengths, I think it's important to think that they've got two different categories of operating. Business operates the private person's way, and that is prices, profit and loss, voluntary exchange. If you don't like Apple, buy an Android, you know, and, and all that. You don't like Pret-a-Manger, go to Greg's, you know, wh whatever it is. But it's prices, profit and loss and voluntary exchange, whereas the government works by coercion, compulsion, by rule following uh, and by penalties. And these are two categorically different ways of working. So, for example, property ownership would be better off in the private sector so that entrepreneurs and investors can make sure that property is directed to serve the public's best interests. And if they get it wrong, they absorb the losses privately. And it's their fault, they're entrepreneurs, it's an entrepreneurial loss, and that's just tough, and taxpayers yeah. don't have to pay for it. But when it comes to enforcement of building regulations, building standards, that absolutely should be done by the state. There must be building standards yeah. and that should be done by the state. And it's an appropriate function to compel people to pay for and to employ highly qualified people to go out there and do it. What ends up to me is a problem is where the state owns property, develops property, controls what property can be done to suit what an official believes is a good idea to be done yeah. in Wickham and across no, Bucks. And then if yeah. there are losses... Sometimes those losses end up absorbed by taxpayers, which is wrong. And sometimes losses end up uh, projected on onto particular investors and entrepreneurs. I've got examples in mind which I can't discuss. But they end up that private people have ended up incurring losses which they might not have otherwise incurred if they hadn't been encouraged very strongly to make particular investments. And, and again, that to me is wrong. Now, um, 
you know, but this is, let's not forget, this is the basically what I would regard as the left wing way of doing things, the interventionist yeah. way of doing things. And so, I, yeah, I mean, my plea would be if your listeners want a system where these two different categories of action are recognised, the private citizen's way and the government's way, and then separate the functions so everybody's doing what they ought to be doing and not treading on each other's toes. Please just, you know, get involved and say, let, yeah, yeah. You know, let's well, have this no, separation. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, you can't complain retrospectively about these things, can you? So, um, and there's two two other topics I just wanted to touch upon briefly. And you sort of gave me a slight segue and you mentioned it earlier, the, pl the planning system. So, so from a local perspective, um, I remember hosting a, a, an MP briefing session up in Waston with um, with Greg Smith. And um, so it was a, a focus on the rural economy, for example, and, and, and actually a lot of the questions there were about planning and the planning system being a dragging anchor on economic development and yeah. farmers wanting to reuse buildings for this or that or the other, but just unable to do so. And I guess that's a good um, example, isn't it, of where you need clearly a framework, you need some controls, you can't just have laissez-faire planning where people just do what they want when they want it. But equally, you can't have a system which is over bureaucratic, is slow and inefficient and actually is that dragging anchor. So so if I gave you a magic wand to change the planning system, what would you do with it? I would follow a prescription set out in a book called Liberating the Land by a professor called Mark Pennington. I made a speech about it in 2013, and actually it was quite popular with the public at a time when there was great controversy over planning up in uh, Dawes Hill area. But look, I, um, I'm a bit emperor's new clothes about this. The fundamental problem of the planning system is twofold. First, that it imposes costs on people with no benefit. If you live next to Tralee Farm, which is a site reserved for housing development, but which is currently a pretty scruffy bit of farmland, but it does occasionally have deer and other you know, stuff running through. If you live adjacent to that and the council's going to build houses on it or have allow houses to be built, you've got absolutely no incentive to say yes. You've just got yeah. costs in, uh, imposed on you for no benefit. It's all disbenefit. So, of course, you're going to say no. And that pattern is repeated everywhere. And that's a problem. So the incentives to say yes have to be changed. So the way I would put this on a leaflet is what the planning system needs is for, for people who own property to have the power to say no, but the incentive to say yes. And Pennington's book does that, sets out how that can be done. The, the, the other sort of thing, Emperor's New Clothes, is fundamentally this. State land use planning has the problem that it is the planning of land use by the state. Now, planning by the state of the use of resources has a name, and that name is socialism. Mm. And one of the problems that my party in particular has is in the post-war era, we adopted a lot of the assumptions of socialism because it had been done. And because we're conservatives, we tend to conserve the institutions we're given. And really, we should have said, no, 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 no. We're not having state land use planning. This is a disaster. And by the way, anyone who think is now shouting at the podcast, go and look at the places we most value around us. I'm sitting here in West Wickham. Go and look at West Wickham Village. Go and look at Henley or Marlow. Or for that matter, go and stand in High Wickham Town Centre and look at the Guildhall and the Pepper Pot and the High Street extending away from the both. These are beautiful, beautiful places to live, to be, to conduct your life. And they all predate the Town and Country Planning Act. Yeah. And the re re reality is we, we do not need this kind of land use planning. What we need is to protect the green spaces that we really treasure. 
the area of outstanding natural beauty here, national parks elsewhere. Um, we need some green belt, but it should be the right green belt. But we should be, be really clear what we need to protect. And we should be really clear about the kind of development that we do object to. So obviously I would object to a tower block being put up next to my house, totally obscuring my view, putting a shadow over, you know, whatever. Things that really impinge on people's lives. There's got to be some basic control of costs being projected onto other people. But we do have to give up this idea that the state knows how land should be used. I mean, I've got litanies of absurd examples that follow from zoning. I'll just give one, if I may. In Loudwater, a man wanted to sell what is a cottage as a house, but because he was using it as an office for his business, he wasn't allowed the change of use inherent in allowing this cottage to be used as a cottage. And that was insane. But yeah. just down the road, you crossed the planning boundary and there was an office block down there that's plainly an office block being converted into flats because on the other side of the boundary there's different planning rules i know and just that's the that's the that's the frustration isn't it because it, it just doesn't make sense i think people can live with things that make sense but i think the problem is when they just don't make sense that's the that's the real issue isn't it so steve so I'm conscious we probably overrun a little bit on time. Um, I never got to talk to you about AI. Um, so so maybe we can come back to that we, we on, a, can, on but, another uh, podcast. Yeah. But if I've allowed one thing as a former software engineer, it's something I'm really excited about. It's like any tool. If you use it, you can be more productive. I use AI every day now. It yeah. is incredible. If you can work out what it is you want, it can save you hours. It's terrific. But you do have to be careful what you ask it to do. And you do yeah. have to scrutinise the results. But I would say to anyone wondering about AI, just get on ChatGPT or one of the other tools and just start using it and just start figuring out how it can make a difference. And I reckon you'll find it's worth paying for. Yeah, and it's amazing, actually. And BBF are doing a lot in this space at the moment. So for anybody listening who wants to better understand the capability of AI and how it can can improve your productivity within your business because I'm using it and it's making a huge difference to my own productivity. Then then please get in contact with the BBF team and they can help. So so Steve, that has been the quickest forty minutes I think I've ever had. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, we've spoken together about all sorts of things over the years, and I always find it very very interesting to do so. Um, you're a very engaging and hardworking politician. Um, for your constituency. So so on behalf of your constituency, uh, it, it, well, those that voted for you within your constituency. <laughs> Careful, uh, Michael, you. we're going too far now. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, so I'm Michael Garvey. I've been speaking with Steve Baker, MP, and thank you for listening. Thank you.